Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you take care of us and you provide for us. You give us everything that we need, especially that hum that we're hearing right now as the marvel of air conditioning technology keeps us from melting. Father, you do provide for so many, many things. But of course, ultimately, you have provided your son, Jesus Christ, which means you have provided us with new life. You have provided us with a hope and a promise of a restoration and the making new of all things. Father, it is because of that that we have this privilege of being able to come in here, we who have uh, new eyes and ears to hear through the work of your Spirit. And so we pray that as we open up your word, that indeed uh, you would open up those eyes and ears to see and to hear those hearts to be able to understand as well what you say to us in your word. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Coffee and Questions is on. We're very much near the end. We have this week. Next week, the week after that, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, wait, Labor Day. We always do, uh, even though Labor Day is technically September, we still don't start uh, official Sunday school till the week after. So you got a little bit of time, but not much. So, all right, before we open it up to the floor, I did get another question via email last week. Um, and Oh, it's still here. We had been looking at uh, Genesis. We had been looking at... Um, the translation in the ESV, how they had changed the word when it talks about the curse that God is pla- when, when God is pronouncing the curse on mankind, and He you know, pronounces the curse on the, the serpent and on the woman and so on, and He works His way down. When He gets to the serpent, uh, I'm sorry, when He gets to the woman right after the serpent, He talks about her desire is, and we saw that it said, your desire will be for your husband. You guys remember that? And just about every translation and other translations tend to do the same thing. Um, and then in 2016, they changed it to desire contrary. Desire contrary. And, that was, and, and these don't line up, by the way. This is not, this was something else we were talking about. We showed that, you know, the translations of the ESV, four, 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 and contrary. And I mentioned that I thought that was very poor uh, because a translation should not interpret for you. Um, sometimes it has to when there's absolutely no way around it. But we looked at the original word in, in uh, the Hebrew, and we saw it also being used in chapter 4. Uh, so why don't we all turn there, because uh, that's what the, the question is about. So we're going to be looking at these. So if you look there, Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the question that comes up here is, what does it mean that the desire is for you? Does it mean that she now will want her husband, that she will long to be under his headship, and that he will rule over her? Is that what it possibly could mean? In other words, the idea then of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, headship in the, in the male and the, and the woman submitting is not part of the natural order that God designed, but is in fact something that is part of the curse of the fall. Could that mean that? Or could it mean your desire now is for you to grab a hold of your husband in the sense of you taking his position, you grabbing a hold of what it is that he um, is supposed to be, the head of the household, and it's going to be the war of the sexes. And he shall rule over you even as you struggle with him to take his role. Couldn't mean that. 
And in order to answer that, we wanted to look at how that word was used. And so last week, all we said was, if you look at Genesis 4, where you see it also being used um, in verse 7, this is God now speaking with Cain, who is tempted to kill his, his brother. Uh, well, just hates him in general because the Lord accepts Abel's offerings, but does not accept Cain's. By the way, he does not accept Cain's offerings. Some people sit there and say, oh, well, one was, you know, animals and the other one was vegetables and therefore God likes it. No. God was pleased to accept one because of his heart and so on. And, you know, as always, God is the one who sees the heart and knows what's going on. So in verse 7, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? See, that's really what it comes down to. God accepts Abel, does not accept the offering of Cain, does not accept Cain himself. Remember, if the offering is accepted, then you're accepted. The idea is that you're putting the offering and saying, I deserve to die, but this dies in my place. I offer it to you. Will you accept me? That's the whole idea of offering, and that hasn't changed today. Jesus is our ultimate offering because his offering was accepted by God. We are accepted, right? So, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule. Oh, there's that word again, rule over it. So here, sin is presented as this predatory animal, and its desire is for you. Does it mean that it longs to submit to Cain? No, what does it mean? It wants to take over. Say again? Devour, kill. Yeah, devour. I mean, you know, obviously sin is not actually there. Uh, the idea is that here what we're, he's using a metaphor, God himself is using imagery to say that it's there ready to pounce and take you down. It wants to, you know, it's for you in the sense that it wants to control you. So you have to be the one now that has to rule over it and so on. Now, if you want a little aside for fun, uh, there are some people who question even that translation, which has been traditionally historically the the interpretation, not translation, uh, interpretation of this passage. What they say is that it literally says, if you do well, would you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin offering, a sin offering, uh, the word is very similar uh, in Hebrew, is crouching at the door. So the idea that maybe there was a goat or there was some animal that could be offered uh, properly its desire is for you. It doesn't make as much sense now. That usually has to be worked by those who put this interpretation out, that it's basically saying it, it wants to be taken by you, and you must, you must rule over it. Well, that must mean I must go and get it. And so it's a little more of a stretch, and the idea there is that God is right there offering the opportunity for Cain to just go outside and grab that offering and to offer it to God. I think it's a bit of a stretch. <clears throat> I think it's a bit of a stretch because while the language can with sin, sin offering, can be used as the same word, um, the other parts are a little harder to put into place. It's a, there's many mo- other ways to sit there and say, go get it and go sacrifice it. You know, it's a little harder. I can see what they were trying to do. They were trying to show that Cain is without excuse because God even put before him what he needed to do. But in reality, I think that's an empty objection. God has given him that chance. God is actually telling him, sin is ready to get you. You just have to be the one who pushes back on it. In that interpretation, the 
classic one. God is dealing with the real issue, which is not the sacrifice, but the heart. And he's telling them it's sin. Your sin is the problem, not whether you offered the right animal or, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? So I think if we go back to the original interpretation, then the word for for, <laughs> the sin is, you know, its desires for you, is not a, oh, sin wants to submit to you. Sin wants to be controlled by you. No, it wants to take you over. Then we look back at our Genesis 3 passage and we start getting a better feel of how Moses is using the Lord here. The woman wants to take over. That's the curse of the fall, her position. Does that begin to fall into place? One of the places we can see this uh, is in 1 Corinthians 11, where um, Paul is talking about the order of things. So when it says that her desire is for you, yeah, it begins to have that word force. There's no actually perfect translation in English. So that desire is it wants to overtake you. It wants to overtake your husband. Desire is for your husband. You want to overtake him. You want to, you know, be like like that prey. So it's not a positive thing. In fact, I should have said, let's put a finger in 1 Corinthians 11, where you get that feel is in the next part of Cain, um, this is Cain's story where he kills his brother. Verse 8, yeah, the very next verse. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The word rose up is the word that's translated for. Um, It literally says, Cain went for his brother, was for his brother. Not for as an, hey, I want to, it meant he went, you know, to, to take him on, to take him down. I think when we look at it all that way, it begins to give us a clear picture. So it's not for as in, hey, I'm for the Constitution, you know, or something like that. It means um, uh, it's a directional, and, and Hebrew has a directional aspect to it. It is toward. In fact, I think somebody mentioned that was in a footnote in one of the readings, in a marginal reading. Uh, it just doesn't make for good English. But that, that desire is toward, but it's not, a, it's not a positive desire, as we can see from the context. So, yeah, the best that you can then interpret that is that the curse is that the woman wants to arrogate to herself something that she was not given um, in, in creation. And when we see that in 1 Corinthians 11, you look at that, verse 2. Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain, uh, um, maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There's a, a lot of reasons I can go into why Paul is talking about that. And let's just skip all that and just look at the actual verse. So Christ is the head of the man in terms of headship. And this is the man in terms of um, a married man. And the husband is the head of the wife. And Christ, uh, and, and the father is the head of Christ. Is the father superior to Jesus, to the second person of Trinity? No, this is not an ontological uh, subjection. It does not mean that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is inferior. He is as much God as the father is. But in terms of role, there is an aspect of submission. 
<clears throat> this is not because of the fall. This has always been the case. The father and the son have always been in the situation where the, the son submits himself not in his glory, not in his person, but in his salvific role, right? So this is not a result of the fall. Um, that means that what we're seeing here when Paul describes it very briefly in 1 Corinthians eleven three, this is the intended order. And if that's the case, we can read back into Genesis and see that in the creation, then God is establishing these two people, right? We read about it in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 26 and 27, if I'm remembering correctly. <clears throat> Let us make man. Man here is for all those who have not been wokeified. The word that has served English language very well for centuries to represent all people. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there are male men and female men. And I know that somebody wants to hear that and say, oh, I've, we've known that. That's what we've been trying to teach. That's not what we mean here. The word man here, the human race, is both male and female. They are both made in the image of God and both have the glory and the dignity that comes from being God's image bearers. They are both equal, but there are roles for them, and that's represented even in chapter 2 when it, more de when it gives more detail of what actually happened in those two verses of how he created the man and how he created the woman and so on. So that leads us then to turn to Genesis 3 and say that what we see here in the curse Everything is a twisting or a making worse of what already existed. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Uh, so the woman was to bear children. And that was not, so having children is not part of the curse, okay? But the pain in childbearing is, right? Let's skip the next one, the desire for a husband. Take a look for men. Uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat it, curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Uh, did he not expect to eat the plants of the field before? Yes, he did. But now it's going to be a pain. It's going to hurt to till the land. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, and so on. So there's something that had been in place before that gets twisted. That's what we have going back to the end of uh, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There was meant to be a natural, loving, headship, submission thing going on, and instead that gets twisted. And it's talking about that. The woman will now long to take the role of the man and subvert that, and the man is going to then respond with aggressive authoritarian rule. Um, isn't that what she did in the actual temptation, right? The, the fruit was um, forbidden to them. She engages the serpent. She makes the decision to, to move forward with it. She does not submit to the husband. However, 
if you read the account, what does it say about Adam? Where was he during this whole thing? He was there. Verse 6 of Genesis 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, so she, she's making all the decisions that would have been uh, the prerogative of the head of the home. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So the husband is the one who now um, submits to her leadership. That's part of the sin as well. So you can see that at the very beginning of his curse. The end of the, uh, the curse to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Things are flipped. You already did that out there. You flipped it and now there's going to be the... And so to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. He brings up the very fact because you not only did this, he could have said because you have ate of the tree. That would have been the sin, right? But he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife, your error was in not taking the lead. Your error was in submitting. Now, we can go a lot of different places with this. This does not mean, uh, you know, um, if you've ever sat through my premarital counseling or so on, you would know that I'm not saying men do not listen to your wives. (laughs) That's not what it says. But it's the idea here, again, of who takes the lead. And because of that, he now suffers his part of the curse. So I think that's the better way of understanding his desire. Your desire shall be for your husband. It's not clear in the English because there isn't any really good way of translating it. My, my um, objection to 2016 putting the word contrary is that it bakes in that interpretation it's a little, see, I think contrary captures much of what I just said, but not enough. Uh, contrary just means that you want this, well, I want that. And it's more like I want to be the one who has it. And it's the word for, I want to take it over. I want to be toward it and capture it and rise up against it and that kind of thing. And so contrary, even though it brings out the adversarial aspect, does not in the end uh, capture it uh, well, and I think the mistake was the translators um, um, being bullied. Really, is what happened uh, by uh, some of the uh, the newer people now on the biblical council of manhood and womanhood who have been pushing for that interpretation, so that nobody could read it any other way, but but in the way that we've just been discussing for the last few minutes. And um, and I think that's poor translation work when you translate. You try to be as neutral as possible. You leave it up to the preacher to do what I just did. Somebody may come in here, a reformed guy, not some, you know, wacky person in some cult or whatever, some respectable, genuine, reverent, God-fearing minister of the gospel, and present a completely different, he'd be wrong, but um, interpretation of what's there. And he should be able to do that. And he might present it, and I might sit there and say, you know what, That's, that's better interpretation. I'll buy that, you know. But we want to leave the English text as much as as neutrally possible as we can. That was my objection to 2016. So the question I had in the email came from uh, the the, the starting point of basically saying, you handled all the lexical stuff last week, but what is the actual interpretation? And, you know, what are we to do? So uh, hopefully that answers 
questions. Are there any questions, comments on this? Oh, it, it has a lot to, you know, yeah. Uh, you talk about third wave feminism and what we're going through, you know. Um, so when we look at feminism coming, you know, uh, people say the 60s, but it really starts at the very end of the 50s. And you see that, you know, and it's had waves. Each one of these is an emphasis. As is always the case, there's an ill in society, something that's not right. Somebody sees that, but unless they're biblically grounded, their solution will be just as bad as the other. It'll just pick up some, it'll trade one evil for another evil. And you see that even in feminism, in which each one of those stages sits there and does something, and then the other sits there and saying, oh, that's not right. And so they address something the previous one did, but then they do their own, and it just gets worse and worse. Hang on, I think I saw a hand in the back first. So let me go back and make sure I'm not 100% sure I understand. When you say he works, you know, he has, to, he has to labor in order, I mean, work becomes laborious, for lack of a better term, and you're saying that's grace. I didn't maybe catch that. Yeah, so you're asking if, if we're growing in grace, does this thing continue? And my hope, my answer is I hope not. Um, anybody who's been married for a little while knows that our natural inclination is uh, to butt heads just because you get two human beings together. And on top of that, you know, all the different things that we've been discussing here get involved. Uh, as far as you're talking about, like, as we get sanctified, should this continue on? I mean, I see the point you're saying. I don't think it's 100% parallel. Uh, the woman clearly, even when she is a strong, mature Christian woman, if she has a child, it's still going to be painful, you know. Um, but this one is more, yeah, in terms of something that can be addressed through sanctification, and, you know, and I think it does get addressed in sanctification. Um, so, yeah, I, I can see where the parallel is going, but I don't think you have to force it. Yeah, it should not be a constant. If it's a constant after years of marriage, then we probably need to talk. Um, no, it should be something that's changed, and the coming of Christ in and of itself actually brings to the fore that this relationship actually models the relationship, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following, that it models the relationship between Jesus and his bride, that is us. So um, the marriage relationship must begin to look more like that in a Christian home than this. Uh, but this is the natural starting point for us in our fallen state. Oh, you can ask Mary Jo and you can see that <laughs> I've not divested myself of it after 34 years. Um, but I think, you know, we, we want to see definite improvement, like with all the fruit of the Spirit. And it's, by the way, it's fruit, not fruits. It's one process that has these different aspects, you know, of maturation. Your patience, your gentleness, you know, all these different aspects of what it means to be a believer. So, yes, you expect to see growing fruit. Um, last one, and then we really must quit, Brandon. But that's what I was saying. There's an ill in society, and it's always a case whether it's for this and everything else. When the solution is not a biblically grounded solution, it's going to go wrong, just as bad. It's going to switch. It's going to just swap one evil for another evil. That has happened with all this. So the goal, if you notice, of feminism today, which I think is what Rob was getting at, is in fact to put what is here condemned as the norm. It is meant to wimpify men, to you know, reduce them, uh, feminize men, and to masculinize women to the point that our culture now actually feels quite, and, and we all laugh and we think it's silly, let's set all that aside and look at what's really happening. We now feel so comfortable that we can actually say that the two sexes will swap. Again, they're sexes, they're not genders, don't buy into that. Uh, think 
that group think, because that's what it's doing. It's all meant to change the way you think. uh, Gender is strictly grammatical and can be assigned, which is why they use it, because they want you to start thinking that sex can be assigned. It cannot. So once we have masculinized women, feminized men, then why not actually even switch and claim that you're the other? That's actually what we're seeing right now, and that is a result of this way of thinking uh, that has dived in. So hopefully in the fall, we'll begin in a sermon series to look at this, and look at uh, postmodernism or late modernism, however you want to describe it, look at those narratives that are now uh, presuppositions, and then we want to look at how we answer those biblically. But uh, for now, just, yes, that, that is what's happening, and you can see that all across the board in any ill that society wants to address. Uh, it always ends up flipping this, you know, and making things just as bad as before, just on another, you know, you're on one foot and then you're off on the other foot, but you never get both feet planted firmly on the ground, which only happens when we follow the biblical model. And I'll just end by saying the perfect way to look at this, because you talked about men should be humble. humble. Humble does not mean feminine. How do I know that? Because we have the perfect model of a man who loves his wife, and that's Jesus. In Jesus, you have what um, Jonathan Edwards used to call this, uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but this, this, this com- combination of the diverse excellencies is what he was talking about. That everything that you think, strength is an important thing. Humility is an important thing. Well, in the, in the ancient world, you never found those together. The one who was strong was strong by himself, so he was a bully. A Roman centurion, a politician, and so on, so on. The one who was humble was weak and useless and stepped upon. Also, not good. In Jesus, I'm just using that as one example, you bring both together. The lion who lays down with the lamb, right? We get that kind of imagery. In Jesus, he is both the lion and the lamb. And when you submit to Jesus... As the lamb, the sacrifice for your sins, he becomes the lion for you, who defends you, right? By the way, if you don't submit to Jesus, then he becomes the lion who rends you at the end of your days, but that's a separate point. But only in Jesus can you bring those things together perfectly. A man who is strong, powerful, the greatest superhero the world has ever known, who is literally turning back time and remaking the whole of the universe, and yet he's meek and humble who can sit and listen and doesn't overpower and uses, as I used to tell my boys when they were young, the, the measure of a man and his strength is his control, right? Those things, that's perfectly found in Christ. And as we mature, we can begin to bring those things together. So that's the answer. But every one of the solutions that we get, at least to the man-woman problem, picks on one and ignores the other. And it just depends on which way the scale is going. And only in Jesus do you find it properly balanced. Okay, got a quick, guys. Went a little longer than even I like to go. Uh, more questions next week. We only have a few more weeks, so uh, hopefully this was of some use. Uh, what I did not hear from in any of these comments was any ladies. I would love to hear your perspective on what we just talked about next week, or if you have questions, please bring those up. Um, anyway, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you made us male and female with equal dignity and equal glory as we reflect your uh, um, inherent glory. And Father, we see in the fall all the damage that has been done to your image, how, how it has become marred, how we are unable to 
on our own, continue uh, carrying the torch, as it were, for you, doing the work that you have um, laid out for us to be your, your vice regents, your, your suzerains, those who rule the earth in your name. That how thankful we are for Jesus who literally breaks the mold and reestablishes what you always intended. We're thankful, Father, that in him we have uh, that perfect husband uh, who represents both uh, strength and humility. And we're thankful, Father, that his rule over us is a truly loving rule and one that is always for our good. And we pray, Lord, that as we study what we read in Genesis 3, that we would better understand uh, the, the challenges that sin has brought into our own life and how it has distorted our affections, our desires, our will, uh, even our thinking. And we pray that through the work of the Spirit, we would uh, be moved to um, become more and more like Jesus, conformed to his image. Uh, we pray that the church would properly model um, the relationship between man and wife as we look to the relationship between Christ and his church. May we set the tone, set the agenda, and overcome these societal ills. Help us to not succumb uh, to what um, society teaches. It's very sad to see many churches buying into uh, LGBTQ and all and T and all the other things. It's also very sad to see churches on the other end buying into a improper understanding of patriarchy and of uh, what it means to be a man over a woman. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to model it in a way that would bring glory to your son, Jesus, and also good to this broken society. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.